Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Stephen Colbrook, your host for today's episode of New Books in History. Today I'll be speaking with Nancy Toms about her important new book, Remaking the American Patient, How Madison Avenue and Modern Medicine Turned Patients into Consumers. It received numerous accolades, including a Bancroft Prize in 2017, one of the most prestigious awards in the field of American history. Toms charts how the rise of modern consumer capitalism shaped the culture of American medicine throughout the 20th century. Welcome to the program, Nancy. Oh, delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. We always begin our show by asking our guests what brought them to the history. So how did you become an historian? Well, when I went off to graduate school in the 1970s, I had never heard of the history of medicine. Um, I wanted to do the history of women in the family. Um, but I was fortunate that I ended up in a, in a place, the University of Pennsylvania, that had the the most amazing historian of medicine, um, really a, uh, a giant in the field named Charles Rosenberg. And um, it was basically Charles who converted me to the history of medicine by getting me a job as a graduate student working in a historic hospital. Um, so I got to handle all the old books in the medical library. Um, I got to catalog the case records of the patients. And I'll tell you, I was hooked uh, from that that moment on, just that the humanness of what I found in those hospital archives. Now, one question people often have is, how can you do the history of medicine if you're not a physician? And I am not. I'm a PhD in American history. Um, In fact, we have to spend a lot of time trying to master the, the science of medicine at the time. But in terms of my interest, I always gravitated more toward the patient side of the equation. So all of my work has kind of looked at that intersection of uh, between uh, doctor and patient. And that's been a theme across all the books that uh, I've done, including uh, Remaking the American Patient. Mm, excellent. So that uh, nicely dovetails into my next question, which is that you've, you've written several engaging works in the field of, me- of medical history, including The Gospel of Germs, which is an account of cultural attitudes towards disease in the early 20th century. And so I was wondering what brought you to the particular subject of healthcare consumerism? In fact, it was when I was doing the work on The Gospel of Germs that the germ of the idea that later became um, remaking the American patient emerged. In the process, so so what I was looking at is how ordinary people, not doctors or public health officials, came to believe in the existence of germs. Uh, Now we think bacteria, virus, uh, but they thought of them just as germs. And I discovered this curious fact. Um, If you look at the kind of um, history of medical science, you find there was a lot of resistance among physicians initially to the idea of the germ theory, um, but entrepreneurs were really quick to jump in there and say, wow, 
this germ idea, I see some real potential to sell things. Um, so I started looking at this whole um, world of commercial efforts to popularize the germ theory that start even in the 1880s uh, to sell things like antiseptics. Listerine, for example, um, starts in this time period. And it got me thinking about the role of advertising in shaping people's expectations of their doctors, but also their own health, how they, they interact with their own uh, bodies. And it, it struck me of, uh, so force, forcibly how modern scientific medicine emerges in the United States at precisely the same time that modern marketing and advertising are emerging and that the two are kind of growing up in the same field of influence and they go back and forth with each other. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, was really um, how does advertising influence um, the expectations we have of our health and our health care um, in this phase of, of, uh, of, of, and, and, um, phase of thinking, I spent a lot of time looking at ads um, and getting interested in, in the history of advertisement. So that was kind of the jumping off point for the, um, the Remaking the American Patient. Fantastic. So Remaking the American Patient begins with a description of 19th century models of medical consumerism. Uh, what was this tradition and why was it replaced with more stringent forms of medical professionalism and drug regulation? It's that's a a great question and one that I think about a lot because some people argue that we may be going back to a 19th century uh, model um, that basically in which anything went Um, Mm. in the United States, particularly a lot of the the more traditional regulations of medical practice and and drug um, uh, sales didn't make the leap, uh, you know, over the Atlantic. And it was, if you look at the, up until the 1890s, it was a snake oil paradise. If you had a product you said could cure cancer, you would put it in a bottle, slap a pretty label on it and start selling it, you know, sometimes off the back of a truck. Um, and the there were very few uh, legal um, or political ways to regulate that snake oil marketplace. Um, you know, this is the age of, of the patent medicine boom and the, the traveling medicine show. It's really quite fun to study um, these remarkable uh, performers who, who were essentially um, taking traditions from American entertainment and other kinds of, of salesmanship and applying them to uh, the sales of, of drugs. Uh, so it's a real Wild West show. Um, it, it was one of the most interesting parts of my research for me was to go back and, and to look at this, uh, this extravagant era of, uh, of medical advertising. Mm. Uh, so how did... Uh... So broader changes during the progressive era, such as democratization, professionalization, and the, the, the cult of the new, affect the rise of the patient consumer? 
So one of the, the, the problems, of course, with this Wild West show is that a great deal of unsafe and inefficient you know, remedies were, were being offered. For much of the 19th century, the medical profession, I mean, was saying, this stuff is garbage, you know, come to us instead. Um, and, and many people did. They both patronized regular doctors, uh, but they also were going for a lot of this, the patent medicine remedies. There are also irregular doctors, as we call them, like homeopaths and, and uh, um, botanical uh, doctors. The, the mainstream medical profession, what become the ancestors of today's biomedicine, um, really were kind of, of uh, hamstrung in their efforts to shut that down until the scientific revolutions in medicine at, at the, the turn of, of the last century. For example, the germ theory. Um, once regular doctors can start to say, look, we have, we have a brand of medicine that's much better than what that snake oil guy has. You need to stick with us. You should only go to a doctor who's gone to the proper medical school and be licensed. In other words, in the, the late 19th, early 20th century, what we call the progressive era, there's a, a beginning to close down that Wild West show. And to put more constraints on uh, the who could advertise himself as a doctor, who could sell what at the pharmacy. So you see the beginnings of more regulation. The this regulation is justified in that it's for the for the consumer's good. We need to make sure that you don't get access to dangerous stuff. Um, one of the big issues at the turn of the century was the lack of information on the label. So somebody could be selling you a tonic that had co uh, morphine, heroin, God knows what in it, and you had no way of knowing um, because there was no legal treatment uh, requirement that you put on the label what was in the product um, that that you were selling. So a lot of the, 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 uh, the changes at the turn of the century are around this idea of consumer protection mm -hmm. um, by improving labels uh, on the one hand. So when you go in the drugstore and you see that bottle, you, you know, it has to say on the label if it has morphine in it. Um, and in the doctor's office, you, you can be assured that if um, you know, Dr. Smith puts MD after his name, and it's mostly hymns at this time period. He, um, he has been licensed by the state of New York or California, um, as a doctor who's gone through, um, the proper training. So it's a big, it's a big turning point. Is it democratization? In a way, it's taking choices away from mm. people. Bad choices. This is the theory. Um, but the promise is, this is safer, this is better. Okay, great. So one of the uh, sections of your book I found most interesting was uh, where you sort of chart how in the interwar period, doctors used several methods to make their their officers more enticing to uh, middle-class patients because there was an increase uh, demand for uh, care, and so I was wondering if you could sort of chart the 
and describe some of the changes doctors made during that period in in response to the increased demand for medical care? This is one of, um, again, the most interesting parts of the book for me to go back because it really uh, reminded me of my own uh, evolution as as a patient. Um, when I would read descriptions of the new doctor's office uh, of the 1920s and 30s, um, I would remember the doctor's office that I went to as, as a child uh, growing up in Kentucky. I, uh, my doctor must have read those articles because so much of, of what I encountered was, you know, straight out of, uh, out of the, the, um, the playbook um, uh, of the time period he became a young doctor. So why was it important for doctors to become more welcoming to their patients and to redesign their offices. A big shift in this time period, and that I think happens in the UK as well, is that as um, medicine becomes more dependent on technology, um, there's a shift from home care to office care. Um, so in the 19th century, physicians went to patients' houses, and the only people who came to the doctor's office were a tiny minority of his practice, usually uh, single men who, frankly, were coming there for treatment, often for their venereal diseases. So office practice was just a tiny part of what doctors did um, in, in, the, in the 19th century. Fast forward, by the 1920s and 30s, the hospital is expanding as a, as a site of care, and increasingly, a doctor's office is sort of your portal um, to first, you can come in there and you get new kinds of technology like the doctor and they have a microscope so he can, you know, look, look to see if there's something funky, you know, in your urine. Um, he, um, some doctors start investing in x-ray machines so they can give you an x-ray even in, in the, in the office. Um, they have all kinds of equipment that they're starting, um, um, to use. So you really, um, you, you, the doctor is saying, uh, look, I, I'm not going to make as many house calls. I need you to come to my office because I can give you a superior, you know, examination. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks were resistant to that. One of the big complaints, I mean, it starts in the 20s and it goes a long time, is my doctor won't make house calls. Um, they did indeed still make house calls for very sick people or very young people, um, but if you were going to lure, you know, adults just for kind of, of um, regular health care and, you know, what, what is this bump on my arm, you needed to get them to come to your office. And that meant making your office more inviting. So instead of, uh, you know, some tiny, nasty hole in the wall, um, doctors were, were encouraged to create um, a more comfortable um, office where you'd have a waiting room. Uh, with comfortable chairs, they would say, you know, you really need to make it inviting, have magazines on the table. One, one thing that just, uh, kind of horrified, but, but also made me laugh is put, uh, boxes of cigarettes. That was considered a service to your, your patient. And, uh, the, the ads for doctors and cigarettes, there's, there's like a whole, chapter, you know, right there. Anyway, the, um, so you would come into the waiting area and then you would go from the waiting area back into the doctor's office. And there was a whole kind of 
theatrical production of having your equipment laid out and having everything be very clean, um, having a nurse receptionist who would kind of like, you know, ease your transition into the, the sacred space of, of the, of the doctor. So just this fascinating, um, um, sort of, of, uh, uh, the doctor's office is the doctor's showroom. Um, and to, to, to pick up on a piece of what you, what you started the question, this whole theater was aimed at patients who could pay. Um, it was aimed at middle and upper middle class, uh, Americans, most of whom at this time period are white and native born. Um, it, doctors wanted patients who could pay. There is no, insurance of any sort in this time period. It is a strict economic transaction. Patient X comes in, gets a bill. The doctor sends the bill. The doctor wants the patient to pay the bill. So a lot of this, this window dressing is, you know, also part of, or, or hooked up with, and here's my bill, sir or ma'am, uh, please pay it you know, in, in a timely fashion. Lots of stuff about bills, billing and bills. Mm. So the the second part of your book moves on to the, the post-war period, the 1940s through to the 1960s. And this is a, an era where there are lots of policy debates over whether the US should have a universal healthcare system, insurance, and eventually then due to rising healthcare prices, Medicaid and Medicare are introduced. I was wondering uh, both how healthcare consumerism interacts with these debates and how it interacts with the fact that the US does not, uh, unlike a number of uh, Western European countries, introduce a universal healthcare system at this point. That There's, there's a question that we've spent many an hour uh, pondering. Uh, there's uh, definitely in my mind, a connection between this um, this focus on attracting patients into the doctor's office, and then the the shape that the American healthcare system takes um, in in the future. There's this kind of idea that um, in order to get the right kind of care, it is the patient's responsibility to choose very carefully. Uh, what kind of doctor they go to, to check the doctor's credentials. And this is supposed to be your protection against getting bad health care. A lot of the resistance from patients as opposed to doctors to creating more state-centered forms of care centered around this desire to be able to walk with your feet. Um, the way that you 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 uh, escaped medical care that you didn't like that you didn't think was efficient or you thought cost too much is you would go to another doctor. So um, I think one of the underlying uh, uh, resistances to going to um, uh, say a national health service kind of of model. Um, was a fear that if your right to pick your own doctor was taken away, you could be uh, victimized by um, physicians who weren't really giving you um, the, the care you wanted. I, I know this, is, this has been one of the hardest things when I talk to my 
my British and my, I have a lot of Dutch friends that I talk medicine to about that, that idea that acting as a consumer was a form of protecting yourself is, mm. is not an easy concept um, to, uh, to get across. But in the, the, um, the United States, the idea of, of consumer power um, you know, is emerging very strongly, even while you're talking the progressive era, the idea that in a market-based democracy that consumers are kind of like market voters and, and they need to, to have choice in order to reward good or bad care. That, that idea is, is really, um, uh, I don't want to say hardwired, but it's, it's like a very strong, um, uh, assumption uh, in in policy debates, and what it does is kind of mean it when when eventually the United States realizes that it it needs publicly supported insurance programs for the elderly. That's Medicare people over the age of sixty five, and then Medicaid uh, for low income people. The systems that are set up uh, mirror the um, the, the kind of private choice-based, you know, allegedly consumer-friendly um, private sphere. So um, in many ways, Medicare and Medicaid, when they are set up, um, have extraordinary, uh, um, um, well, more, this is more true of Medicare than Medicaid. They leave that concept of patients being able to choose their doctors is is very uh, important to the way those systems are, are set up. Um, and because of the extraordinary influence until really the late 1960s of the American Medical Association, very conservative um, organization of, of physicians, mm -hmm. in order to get doctors to participate in this system, um, they they bargain and they win extraordinary freedom to set their own prices, and that is kind of uh, as they were as they did in the in the private sector. I mean, the it was to go back to the the economic transaction in the uh, when you went to see the doctor, the doctor determined the fee. Um, you you didn't go in and bargain, although some people would then try to uh, talk, talk it down or get the price down. Um, in, in fee-for-service medicine, which is what we get in the United States, it's the doctor who sets the fee uh, and tells you, this is what my service is worth. And that's a system that kind of has an inbuilt in, and what I'm giving you is really valuable. So I am, uh, you know, the phrase, what the market will bear, um, mm. real upward trend in uh, healthcare prices, in in the private sector, that then is carried over into the public sector as well. Uh, famous story about the passage of, of Medicare that uh, when the then President Lyndon Baines Johnson was told, "Look, you are you are setting in motion what is going to become a medical inflationary machine by allowing physicians." to determine the need for treatment and the cost of treatment. And he said, you know, don't worry about it. Let's just, just get the system in place and we'll, we'll worry about that later. Well, we're worrying about that later. We've been worrying about that almost within a year of the passage of these 
the, the Medicare, the, that inflationary spiral starts to, uh, starts to kick in. Hmm. Excellent. So, uh, you also chart how, uh, a number of the social movements of the 1960s kind of appropriated the language and used the language of, uh, medical consumerism. So I was wondering if you could talk about how the, uh, the idea of a patient consumer was used by movements like the women's health rights, uh, movement and also other groups in the 1960s? This was a fascinating part of the story for me because, again, I, I remember when a lot of these things uh, happened. And, and, and yet, as a, uh, someone living through the women's health movement, the bigger picture um, and, and also the relationship among the different movements was not so clear to me. And it was really interesting to go back and look at that time period from, from – uh, from an older me to go back and, and look at that. One of the, the, the tensions that fascinated me um, was the, ten, the growing disconnect in American political culture between the democratization and the idea that people should be given the opportunity to make the most of themselves um, and the deference to expertise. So you have both you know, popular democracy, but you also have this idea that scientific experts have knowledge that you, a mere patient, can't possibly understand. Um, so with this kind of, of uh, as medicine becomes more biomedical after World War II, um, a growing distance between the doctor and the patient in terms of what the doctor knows and what the patient knows. Um, and for, you know, not always the case, but for many physicians, a kind of arrogance um, that they didn't need to explain what they were doing and that they, um, uh, in, in the American uh, pop culture, they call it the God complex. Uh, mm. That, uh, you know, you're a man in a, 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 in a white coat and you should be able to um, do recall whatever you want on the body of your patient because doctor knows best. Um, if you, it, and that kind of, of uh, medical uh, entitlement really starts to come under uh, criticism in the late 1950s. And then it just booms in the 1960s that that kind of um, asymmetrical relationship is dangerous. It's dangerous to the patient because the doctor is not listening to what the patient is, is saying. Um, the doctor may be dismissing uh, symptoms. Um, the doctor may be ignoring the just the humanity of, of, the, of the sick person. Um, and this kind of feeds into a, a sort of major shift in American culture and European as well, um, toward um, a, a, a reassertion of the right of the patient to uh, be listened to. Um, so the, the, um, the concept uh, or the, the sort of core principles of this 1960s version of, of consumer rights for patients becomes the right to be informed 
about what the doctor is going to do to you, what the side effects are, um, the right to refuse treatment if you don't want it. Um, all of this emerges as, as a kind of um, democratic check on this more authoritarian medical um, tradition. In the women's health movement, uh, this, this, it's like a classic example of um, a, a particular group of patients um, who were treated um, as half-wits um, and, and very little consultation. Um, the assumption, and again, most physicians in the 60s uh, up until the 1970s were white men from relatively privileged backgrounds that, you know, their assumption was the woman coming into their office was was hysterical, irrational, um, and should be listened to as little as possible. So the women's health movement really blows up this or really goes after this concept of authoritarianism in the doctor's office and tries to bring in the the, the principles of, of a greater, uh, a more feminist perspective, a more egalitarian perspective. Um, and it's it's not just the women's health movement. You, you see in the civil rights movement um, a growing um, uh, awareness of how uh, a race figures into this this kind of um, authoritarian um, um, style of, of medical practice. And when you bring this back to all the all the, the fussing about how the prices are going up. Um, you're paying a lot to go see a, a doctor who may then not listen to you and do something to you that that you don't want. Um, mm. Probably the best example of of how these issues really start to um, to uh, come out into the you know, general discussion um, are in uh, the treatments of of breast cancer. Um, it's a really terrific book, not by me, but by my friend Baron Werner. Um, really looking at the style of, of um, medical practice where uh, women uh, would be taken into a, a um, surgical suite to have a biopsy uh, done um, and wake up with a radical mastectomy. They were not allowed to be woken up and apprised of what the results of the biopsy were and to, to have any say over the surgical procedure. So a a lot of the health consumerism gets focused on um, questions of of, um, informed consent, consent to treatment, before treatment. Um, And, you know, that it's really a game changer in terms of, of once organized groups of patient advocates start to say, no, I want you to wake me up and let me think about this before you do it. And this gets wrapped up with the radical mastectomy widely practiced in the United States at a time when surgeons in other countries are starting to do partial, you know, much less mutilating um, and have equally good results. So it, it becomes a debate about the quality of the medical care itself. Is that the right procedure? And it kind of leads into this loop where increasingly you as a patient are told, um, you need to do your homework before you go to the doctor. And then if, you know, 
he, he suggests a radical mastectomy. You say, no, I'm really interested in this procedure I've heard about uh, where you don't have to do that. Um, you know, it just feeds into this idea that you need to do your homework before you go to the doctor's office. Fantastic. So the third uh, section of your book charts changes in the uh, final two decades of the 20th century uh, during the Reagan era. And uh, I was wondering how the, the commercialization of the health sector during the, this era, um, in particular uh, through the growth of HMOs, for-profit medicine, affected the relationship between uh, consumers and doctors. Oh, boy. This is one of the saddest parts for me uh, was, um, and I'll just back up and say, of all the parts of the book, this was the hardest for me to write, was everything after uh, 1970, um, and especially the 1980s onward. And it it's kind of reinforces the idea when and the closer you get to the present, the, the murkier and the messier it is to try to figure out what's, uh, what's going on. Um, but the, the 1980s are really a, a major turning point in American healthcare um, because by 1980, when Reagan is elected, the results of Johnson's, you know, casual, oh, we'll deal with that later. Um, the costs of healthcare have skyrocketed because now basically the federal government is, is, uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, paying for Medicare with no, no strings uh, attached. And the, if you have one sector, Medicare, where the prices are going up. All the prices everywhere else tend to go up mm. with them. Uh, so it's just it's it's medical inflation had really reached. Uh, you know it 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 had been bad before Medicare and Medicaid, but it was much worse. And there's a uh, a reckoning, um, and both Democrats and Republicans kind of realize that this can't go on. Uh, how do you fix that? How do you fix this system um, where doctors have so much control over both the decision of what care to offer and what to charge for it? Well, the answer comes out of um, alternative ways of financing healthcare, such as the HMO. Um, in my work, I, I came to understand that the, the sort of think of there was a good HMO and there was a bad HMO. And what we ended up with was the bad HMO. The original concept of a health maintenance organization um, was a, um, a, a single place you would go. Um, you would be uh, like have, a, have an initial gatekeeper uh, physician who would evaluate you and then send you to the, the specialists in that practice to have your your um, appropriate treatment. So it was meant to be collaborative. It was meant to cut down on what was a huge problem in the United States that you could go to a specialist without any kind of prior approval. And specialists always cost more than generalists. Um, so it was meant to be cost-saving. Mm. Um, but to get people to buy in, the idea was you would join an HMO and then you would... Um, 
you would stay within that practice for your treatment. And there was kind of built in cross, cross controls there. The, the good HMOs, um, said, well, we offer a higher quality of care and they had some good evidence. They did, in fact, offer a high quality of care. But what's the sticking point? If you think back to my earlier point, does the patient get to choose the doctor? No. In an HMO, although actually you could, um, there was a lot more choice um, than, than um, critics said, but it became this kind of boogeyman. Oh, you go to an HMO, you don't get to choose your doctor anymore, and thus you, you lose control. Um, you lose your ability to protect yourself. Um, so HMOs are, are um, held up as an alternative to fee-for-service medicine. Um, it's Republicans who really start uh, um, offering these alternatives. It's, it's Richard Nixon um, who says, hey, we got to look at this HMO idea. Um, but it, it, um, it doesn't work the way uh, its original um, you know, enthusiasts hoped because um, with, with this kind of, of suspicion, I'm talking about HMOs. It's not so easy to get people to switch into that. Um, but the other piece of it is the, um, the kind of idea of coordination of care and uh, uh, holding down of prices. Um, it, it, um, that be- became an end in itself. Um, so, um, when the, the kind of HMO idea does not take off, then you see the Reagan administration, um, starting to look at other ways to get healthcare costs down, um, by, uh, basically price, uh, regulating prices. So you begin to get the, the, uh, diagnostic related groups. I mean, this is all too much in the weeds for your listeners. But then basically, it's a system for deciding how much the federal government is going to give a hospital to care for Medicare uh, patients. And it, that becomes the tool for controlling healthcare costs, puts a lot of stress on, on hospitals who are not used to this kind of, of uh, oversight. And Many of those hospitals had been using the overage and what they got from public money to take care of indigent mm. patients. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, the the move toward more regulation of healthcare prices has—I don't know if it was an unintended effect uh, or intended—but uh, it it starts to put pressure on um, the provision of care um, to uh, people of limited means, and it. You know, the train wreck just, it, it wrecks in so many dimensions uh, once this spiral gets going. Managed care, managed competition, I mean, this all grows out of that same uh, HMO concept that um, if you want to hold down prices, you really have to get doctors to compete with each other. Um, and so the idea is if you make medical care uh, make doctors and hospitals compete over price, that that will help bring the prices down. Turns out it doesn't. Uh, so how did the uh, the sort of interacting forces of managed care, uh, increased HMOs and uh, inflationary prices uh, 
interact to mean that healthcare reform became difficult in the 1990s? So there, I, I think by the time of the, the ill-fated Clinton plan, there was wide agreement on both sides of the aisle, in, in the Republicans and the Democrats, that um, these attempts to rein in medical costs were, uh, were not succeeding and that um, there was a real core problem here in terms of providing that choice of physician and treatment at the same time you were trying to regulate price. Um, the kind of key shift that I saw in the 1990s is, is a lot of the healthcare reform in the 1980s was about bringing prices down, but it was less interested in the quality of care. What you get in the 1990s, especially when the Clinton plan goes down in, in flames, is a shift to, okay, let's try to improve the quality of care uh, and not focus just on the price. But um, the theory here was that if you could do a better job in getting people to the right treatment, uh, that you could save costs, you could save waste. Um, you know, the person going to the three different specialists before they, they find um, the, the right one. Um, so there's a kind of shift to uh, talking about quality. Um, the, the problem, again, is that much of this talking goes on among policy planners and, um, and you know, think tanks. It's, it doesn't translate well down to the, the level of patients making choices. Um, they're, you know, they're being told that they have this responsibility to choose wisely, but the vast majority of them are by the 1990s in health insurance plans, mm -hmm. some through their employers, some that they purchased on their own. Um, they don't allow them um, this, this kind of freedom to move around and um, seek out uh, quality care. And the, the kind of bitterness of managed care in the, uh, you know, in this time period are, it's often around, um, ways that insurance companies limit your choice, uh, by refusing to reimburse you for, for certain kinds of care, um, that they deem unnecessary or, uh, inexpensive, uh, uh, and, and also the push to try to save money by having people spend fewer days in the hospital. You know, you probably heard the expression drive through mastectomy and, um, you know, the women coming in to, to have babies to get you out of the hospital, you know, have the baby leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so this real pressure to kind of, um, uh, it, it's an industrial attitude to get that patient in, get them out as fast as possible. Um, that it generates a lot of hostility and distrust on, on the part of, of the patients. So your book charts the, the complex interactions between the, this, sorry. So your book charts the complex interactions between this culture of consumerism and healthcare throughout the 20th century. How do you think uh, it's interacting now during the current crisis that American healthcare is facing. Do you think it's having an overall positive or negative effect? I'd say, in, in as in terms of my historical interpretation, probably my 
the biggest point I wanted to get across about the contemporary debates is to push back against the tendency to blame patients for making bad choices as the source of our, our healthcare problems. Uh, patient blaming um, has, you know, become a big part of why does the American healthcare system work so badly? It's the patient's fault. And I just, um, I, and I'm, I, I don't say there aren't some really dumb things that people do, but the system is set up in such a way that, that uh, to explain all its faults through poorly informed choices, I think is just not only historically incorrect, but, but just politically um, un- unacceptable. So a lot of what I hoped by writing the book was to kind of dissect the way this whole patient as consumer, the patient who must shop, where that idea comes from, um, but to show how it hasn't worked, not because people don't try, but because shopping doesn't work well when it comes down to medical care, because so much of what's most expensive and most consequential, you don't choose. The doctor chooses it for you. Um, And a lot of what consumerism came to mean starting in the 1980s was um, a um, a, a influence on patients to come in and ask for, for example, prescription drugs. We haven't talked about direct-to-consumer advertising, but that's very much a part of this this, uh, market uh, model that comes out in the 1980s is you, you know, this tremendous effort to try to get patients to ask for specific um, drugs, specific treatments when, when, they, when they come to the doctor. Um, and then when those expenses, those, it turns out to be expensive or whatever, you blame them for asking for that treatment in the first place. So it's like a really, um, really perverse. There are all these perverse incentives that people are given to ask for expensive treatments that may or may not work. And then when they don't work and they cost too much, it's, it's their fault. Um, the other thing I, I really want to, or really came to understand is how this whole model of the patient who shops is tilted toward white affluent uh, patients. Um, nobody in this system wants the poor patient. They're, they are just a bad they're a bad investment. Um, so this this concept of of, of uh, patient shopping is really so tilted toward people of means and away from people without means that that is one of its its fatal uh, fatal flaws. Um, that said, when writing the book, I I was critical of of this kind of of consumerism, and yet I didn't want to neglect the achievements that it did have. For example, uh, the concept of informed consent, that you should not uh, be treated like the, the women with the radical mastectomies. You should have some say um, over, over your treatment. Very hard balance, I'd say, to reach in terms of, of writing the book about how to point out the flaws, but um, also acknowledge um, the good that came out of it. 
Well, I think we've taken enough of your time, Nancy. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. It's traditional for us to ask as a final question, what are you working on now? Oh, what fun. Um, I am following up on some of the insights I've gotten of why this idea of patient as consumer seems so strange in other parts of the world. So I'm part of uh, um, a... a um, research initiative to look at the history of how concepts like the patient who shops uh, circulate um, in, in other parts of the world. That's really been fascinating. The other thing I'm, I'm working on is the impact of the internet on uh, the concept of the informed patient. So medical Googlers and all that kind of uh, interesting stuff. So what difference does it make to the concept of being a, a good patient when you can now go online and, you know, get access to the same medical journals that your physician is reading? So um, that is just been fascinating um, to me. Well, I very much look forward to reading all of that research when it comes out.